0: Where is God in our suffering? Have you guys ever asked that question? "Where is God in our suffering? It's actually a, quite a common question. We go through suffering, and then oftentimes we find ourselves asking the question, "Where is God in our suffering?" And it, it is not a bad question to ask. But in fact, it is better to ask that question before you get into the darkness of suffering. So if you guys want to prepare for suffering, the question, I mean, you shouldn't push off the question until you're in it. But yet you should be asking the question right now before you get into the time of suffering. In order that the question might be asked and then we might be rooted, grounded in the truth that God has set forth in his word. The fact that God indeed is present in the midst of suffering. This is what we see in our passage today from Genesis chapter 39 to 41. I invite you guys to turn there with me. Genesis chapter 39 to 41. The main point here is really the same as last week is that God keeps his people in his grace by his grace. God keeps his people in his grace by his grace. Last week we looked at How God gives grace even to those who abandon him. To those who discard covenant faithfulness and covenant fidelity and then pursue other things. And very clearly we saw immorality, selfishness, their own ways. But but this week, as we look at the fact that God keeps his people in his grace by his grace, we look at the fact that God's grace goes to the abandoned. Last week was those who abandon others. This week... It's God's grace for the abandoned. And our passage today is broken up in two sections or two points. Point number one, we have Joseph's humiliation. And then point number two, Joseph's exaltation. Point number one, Joseph's humiliation. And then point number two, Joseph's exaltation. If you're joining us for the first time, we continue through uh, the book of Genesis. And uh, starting last week, we began looking at the Joseph story. And really, the Joseph story will take us all the way until the end of the book of Genesis. And Genesis itself can be broken up into two different sections, chapters 1 to 11, that is, the history of all things up to the fathers of the faith, and then you have Genesis 12 to the end, that is, the history of the patriarchs, or the histories of the fathers of the faith. And we're looking at one of the fathers of the faith, that is, Joseph. He was the son of Israel, in fact, Israel, or Jacob, he had In fact, uh, many children, and Joseph is just one of them. But the emphasis here in the rest of Genesis is really on this man, this young teen, really, named Joseph. Let's look at Joseph's humiliation, chapter 39 of Genesis. This book was written by Moses. In fact, the first five books of the Bible were written by Moses. The story of Joseph's humiliation is a bit like reading about a guy who gets kicked down. Or kicked further, even though he's already on the ground. And what gets Joseph on the ground is that his brothers turn on him. His own flesh and blood turn on him and then sell him into slavery. As chapter 37 tells us, Joseph from from very young was favored by his father. So his dad trusted him more. His dad brought him into the inner council, so to speak. And then number, number three, his dad Israel... Or Jacob, but here his name is Israel. Uh, He also made him a special coat of many colors. So he wears this privilege. And his brothers are ticked. They hate him. And this hatred, this jealousy, this covetousness is what led his brothers to want to kill him. So, you know, it gives birth to these murderous thoughts. You know, I have a brother and literally the worst thing that he ever did was punch me in the back. I mean, imagine the, the hostility and the enmity that comes when your brothers actually plot a plan on how to kill you. And eventually, by God's grace, they change their mind and instead they, they decide to make some money out of them. You know, that's more lucrative. And so instead they sell them. So here Judah was the opportunistic brother and said, well, it doesn't profit us. Any. Let's go ahead and sell them to the Ishmaelites of all people. So here you have, you have the people of Isaac. The people of Abraham, selling one of their own to the Ishmaelites. And we know that this is a bad situation. Seeking to cover up their wrongdoing. Go ahead and look there at chapter 37, 31. 37, 31. They take Joseph's coat, after they had stripped him of it, and they dip it in blood, and then they bring it back to their father. And it says there, he identified it and said, It is my son's robe, a fierce... Animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces, and he feels the sting of death. And so he says, "My soul," he says, "My soul will go down to Sheol or to death." Now we all come from dysfunctional families to some degree, but it's hard to top Joseph's. The wickedness of their hearts was immense. And it's helpful, though, that from the first few chapters of Genesis, we know what to expect when man lives apart from God, don't we? So we can actually expect this kind of treatment in a world of sinners, where God creates man to live in relationship under him, but then man rejects this rule, and instead they choose to live after their own wills. And so, which is why, in chapter 3, you see sin enters into the world. Chapter 4, you have the first fratricide, or brother murdering a brother and then also chapters 4 and 5 you see you see uh, murder sort of gives birth to other or anger and jealousy give birth to other things and revenge and so you have a guy named Lamech in chapters 4 and 5 and his sin is worse than Cain's and then in chapter 6 you have God looking upon the earth and seeing nothing but wickedness in the hearts of men now that doesn't mean that man is not as bad as we could be by God's grace we are not as bad as we could be but nevertheless. The intentions of our heart have all gone wayward, apart from God, and we have rebelled against Him. Sadly here, Genesis tells a story about man out of control. Man ruled by their passions. Last week we looked at, um, to some degree, right, we're all ruled by our passions, and we saw that God's grace is even for those who abandon Him. At the same time, God's grace is for those who have been abandoned. Even when we think that God is not there, He, in fact, is keeping us in His grace and by His grace. I wonder for you all, in the midst of your struggles, how many of you wrestle to believe that God is actually with you in your suffering? Now, now for a second there, don't write off, no matter how minimal you think your suffering really is, it's legitimate suffering. So just think about that. No matter what that suffering is, how many of you guys wrestle to believe that God is actually with you in your suffering? Maybe you yourself wonder if God has played some cruel joke on you, using his power to create you, but then not using his personhood to relate to you. Right? It all of a sudden becomes some sort of cruel joke. God, being a personable God with a personality, he creates us as we are born to relate with one another But yet, he uses his power to create us, but with a personality, he refuses to interact with us. Is that your idea of God in the midst of suffering? And so you, therefore, feel lost and alone. I wonder if Joseph doubted God. He was, in fact, abandoned. He was sold into slavery. And then, in the beginning of 39, he's just traded like a commodity. He used to enjoy privilege with his father, but... Now he's just a thing to the Ishmaelites and to his brothers. And then eventually he gets sold to the Egyptians, to Potiphar, the captain of Pharaoh's guard. You know what an interesting uh, interesting thing about the story is, or at least one of them, is that Moses, the one who's recording down this history and writing it to his people, he refrains from telling us Joseph's feelings and thoughts. It's a really fascinating aspect of the story here. He doesn't tell us Joseph's feelings and thoughts. You know, there are other books in Scripture uh, that talk about how the suffering person, you know, the author writes about what they feel and what they're going through. So you can think about the the book of Ruth, for example. You got Ruth and then her mother-in-law. They uh, lose everything. So they go through great times of suffering, losing their loved ones during this time of famine. Uh, Or we can think about the book of Esther, for example. Esther actually doesn't mention God at all. Ruth barely mentions God. And the way that these stories are written makes the reader ask the question, where is God in suffering? Now, of course, those are wonderful stories reminding us of the fact that God is with us in our deepest suffering, that he's still present with us. Those stories are reminders that come after Genesis. It's interesting, isn't it? In Genesis, here, we have the assertion that God is with us. It's the truth here. Joseph, he's not really the main player here. The hero of the story really is God. We have the assertion that God is with us. And Genesis establishes this covenant character of God. Now, Ruth, later on. Job, later on. Esther, later on. And even Jesus, later on. Are all reminders of the fact of the truths that God asserts, that he lays down here as the foundation. Genesis insists that God is with his people, never letting go, never losing grip, but present, always, with his people. And so it is with Joseph. Uh, Look at how God insists that you know where he is. Right? This isn't about really Joseph here. God is the hero. Look at verse 2 of chapter 39. It says, the Lord was with Joseph. It's an interesting place to put that fact, right? I mean, he could have withheld it, right? That would have been a little bit more suspenseful. You know, has God ditched us or not? But no, it doesn't. It says he was traded to the Egyptians. He's now under the house of Potiphar, and the Lord was with him. Don't forget it, guys. And he became a successful man, and he was in the house of the Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in the sight of in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. Verse 5, from that time, from the time that he made him overseer in his house over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. The story is God's grace to us, isn't it? It is God's grace to us. Because it it presents us with the realities of what it looks like to live in a sinful world when the trials and difficulties come. But yet, God here insists that we know that he, in fact, is keeping us in his grace by his grace even when we feel like he is not. I love how in this story, God does not give us a chance to really say, is God with us or not? He just is. So if you guys are feeling the, the sting of loneliness, for whatever, however it is that you might define loneliness, or for whatever reason you feel the sting of loneliness, God says, no. I, don't, I do not lose grip. In fact, I am here. This is a a battle for the mind, a battle for truth, when we feel some sort of loneliness, or we feel abandoned by God. We're tempted to believe the lies that God does not care about you. That he, in fact, has abandoned you, that he does not understand you. That he has somehow failed you, and so maybe you feel like you are on the floor getting kicked, (coughs) crying out to God, say something, anything. Anything. Or else I am going to give up on you. This, friends, is one of the many answers. This story is one of the many answers that ought to stay our emotions, our minds, our souls, on the rock-solid character of the God of covenant faithfulness. This is the Lord of the covenant. And all of His covenant lordship, His authority, His power, His sovereignty, His control... And his presence is given towards you. Abraham, for example. right? Remember Genesis, he's establishing who he is and what he does. Abraham, God draws near to Abraham in the midst of him and Sarai's sufferings. Isaac, God does the exact same thing in the barrenness. Jacob, God meets him in the desert to strengthen his faith when he's relying all on himself. And then, of course, we can look at Jesus. God the God of covenant faithfulness, even being faithful to His very own eternal Son. So I encourage you, if you are given to believing things that are outside of the Bible, I encourage you to speak these truths to yourself and insist, just as God does, insist in the midst of suffering that in fact He is with us and that He promises to never abandon us. Joseph, in fact, is going to need these truths he may be in charge of the house of the captain of the guard, but things are going to get very bad very quickly. If you look there in verse 6, you look at this, this rise. I mean, he's sold into slavery, and then, he, then we experienced this up a little bit. Verse 6, so he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Uh, it's a little sociological uh, fact there. The Egyptians had a cultist built around food, so they wouldn't have a Jew Uh, a Hebrew person uh, prepare their food, which is why he's giving him, uh, putting him over everything except the food that he ate. Now look at the last half of verse 6 and you see that something bad is going to happen here. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Right? You just know that something is going to happen because here's a good looking dude wandering alone in Egypt. And by this time, he's still in his late teens. And look at what Potiphar, the captain of the guard, his wife does. Look there at verse 7. And after a time, um, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. And so, obviously, you, you know what she's getting at. You know, this is her plan. A woman who is not his wife is aggressively trying to lure him into bed and to commit adultery. And she herself, too, is throwing off covenant fidelity. It's a marriage relationship, and even though they're non-Christians, it still is a covenant. It's a stark contrast to the covenant fidelity and faithfulness that we saw last week in Tamar. And there, right, uh, Judah commends her for her covenant faithfulness. But here's Potiphar's wife pleading with his young team, lie with me. She's uncaring about her covenant with Potiphar, determined it seems, to live in unfaithfulness. You look there at verses 8 and 9, you see his response. But he refused. How's that, young teen? You young men who are really laboring for self-control and discipline in your life, particularly with these issues. But he refused and said to his master's wife, you know, this is his master's wife, and she has, she has very great authority over him too. All, all part of her needs is one wife from his master, and here he's going to be thrown into jail. But he, nevertheless, he goes forward. Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put it, put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? This young man is a loyal man, a faithful man. And he gives Potiphar's wife two reasons why he won't lie with her. Number one, it's because of his his honor towards Potiphar. Potiphar is his boss, as is clear in verse 8, because of me, my master has no concern about anything. So in other words, he has earned the honor that comes from Potiphar. This is a good relationship. He's trusted. He's faithful. The second reason, and more foundational reason here, is that is his honor for God there in verse 9. You see that? How then can I do this great wickedness, he names it, and sin against God? So here it's not primarily against Potiphar's wife or Potiphar. This is a sin against God, and I cannot do this great wickedness. And so his actions back up his words. Great, beautiful thing so far. His actions back up his words. Look there in verse 10. And as she spoke to Joseph, day after day. Let me just pause for a second right there and and put yourself in the place of temptation. Where day after day, hour after hour, the temptress is drawing near to the man. But yet, Joseph, being so pious, uh, even though she speaks to him day after day, he would not listen to her. It's kind of a funny scene. He would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. Those three things will not listen, will not lie beside her. Now, now, that term actually conveys this idea of not giving Satan any opportunity for there to be a relationship that would grow into something more dangerous. You know, he's not even giving any opportunity. And then lastly, of course, he would not even be with her. It's kind of a strange scene. I mean, you got... Joseph here, who works in Potiphar's house, and Potiphar is Potiphar's wife is obviously uh, over the house as well. And yet here he's walking through the, the house saying, I'm not going to listen to you. And even if she's in one room, I'm going to stay away from that room. You, know, you dudes who might wrestle with this temptation, and certainly we wrestle with it, at least most of us, differently than women. I hope you are able to learn something from Joseph right here. If you're given to lust, thoughts of adultery, thoughts of cheating, uh, as you strive for godliness, remember, uh, as Al Mohler has once said, you cannot commit sexual immorality with a woman you are never with. You can't commit sexual immorality with a woman you are never with. And so Joseph is mindful of that. I can't be accused of anything if I'm never with her, if I'm giving no opportunity to listen to her flirtatious. Words. I mean, just determine in your mind right now, young man, to never be alone with a woman. Even if she's your girlfriend, what a good and godly thing. It means that anyone who is watching you conduct your relationship with a woman can never say, I definitely know what they're doing behind closed doors. It's just not a possibility with Joseph. And I hope and I pray that this would be never a possibility with you guys. Or if you do have to meet somewhere in public, you know, there are certain caveats we want to state about these relationships, especially if you're dating somebody, you know, go go and meet in public. Go meet somewhere where someone can actually see what you're doing. Billy Graham was known to do this. He would never enter into a room that was not checked first by his assistants. And so he would send his aides in into the hotel room. You know, he travels all over the world so that they might check and see if there are any unwanted guests in the room. And then, of course, if he did have to meet somebody, he would go and meet them in public. Uh, it's just a basic, common-sense way to live above reproach. And that's what it seems that Joseph is striving to do. Not listen, not be beside her, and not even be with her. Unfortunately, though, for Jacob, some things are out of his control. Look there in verse 11. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men in the house were in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. So before it's just words, but now she's a very aggressive, grabbing on to his garment. Not quite sure what that garment is, um, but nevertheless, she's grabbing on to his clothes. And then look at Jace, Jacob's response. He left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Now how many of us, for one moment would think like oh how do i not offend my boss's wife because she could just tell potiphar and then i'm my head's gone he doesn't care though about looking stupid or even honoring his authority but he just takes off shedding his clothes he just runs out and you know clothing is an issue with this man joseph he had the coat of many colors but the brother stripped him of it he goes to prison and presumably he's given the prison clothes. But here, even though he wears the clothes, he's shedding it. And then eventually we see that Pharaoh will give him new clothes. Uh, but it, it, not only is are his garments under attack, of course he himself is under attack. He runs out of the house. His humiliation gets worse as Potiphar's wife manipulates the, the situation. She accuses them of unwanted sexual advances. Look there at 13 and 15. This is rape. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us this Hebrew. that he is Potiphar's." Here, she's blaming her own husband. See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as I heard that I... uh, and as soon as he heard that, I lifted up my voice and cried out. He left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. She's conniving, isn't she? She twists the flat the facts, misrepresents what Joseph did. The truth is that she is the one who grabbed him, and then he left his garment and ran, and then she cried out. But here, the the, the events are switched. She says that he made the advances and then, she says, I cried out and then he left. So she's twisting the events here, misrepresenting him, twisting the truth, actively seeking to get him executed and, in fact, slandering his name. Did you see there what, he, what she calls him? He has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. Now that's a whole nother level all of a sudden. If you, are, if you have any tinge of righteousness in here given to people by God, <clears throat> this is a significant thing. As you know, that God had promised Abraham that God would give him a large house, you know, many descendants. That God would give him a nation and build a kingdom on him. And then one from his line will be a blessing to all nations. Here is a Hebrew living amongst the Egyptians and the Egyptians are saying, this Hebrew, this person of God, he's shaming us. He's a curse to us. So all of a sudden, God's name is drawn into this story here. Slandering Joseph as a son of God. Slandering, really, the people of God. And it gets worse. The accusations continue. Look what she does there in verse 16. She laid up the garment by her until his master came home. So the, event, the, the accusation already takes place. And so she plots, well, how can I pitch the story to, to the best of my ability to Potiphar? And so she takes the garment and then lies with it and waits for Potiphar to come home. And then she spits the same slander and lies to him, this Hebrew. He's laughing at us now. And then look at the result in 19 and 20. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. Now we can add to the list here of Joseph's sufferings. He's been falsely accused of some very serious issues. He's been slandered, and now he's pushed out of the favor of the very one he wants to honor. The very one whose honor he has already earned. I don't know about you guys, but I, in my own sinfulness and lack of faith, would feel down for the count. My brothers have already taken my physical well-being. But then as you get to Egypt, imagine, you might say, what I have, though, is my honor. I am a man of God. I am a Hebrew of the covenant people of God. But even here, you see, the Egyptians are taking what everything that he has left his very honor imagine how powerless you might feel the very the only thing that you think you can control is gone maybe you have a temptation to withdraw maybe you think your only your only solution is to rage against the machine towards my brothers right i might i might uh, want to take revenge in sin But here, when it comes to restoring my name as a man of God, driven by some sense of righteousness, right? We want vindication. I'm sure many of you guys have been slandered or will be slandered. You know what helps us not to give up hope in the face of lies? It's knowing, again, that God never gives up on his honor. Never gives up on his honor. He never gives up on Himself. Now, why that's important is because because for God, what is at stake in the slandering of His people's name is His own name. What is at stake in the slandering of His people's name is His own name. And we know from Scripture that He always vindicates His name. As the story of Israel goes, throughout Exodus, God moves to save through judgment. Because, as God says, I am the Lord. And because he is the covenant God, Yahweh, he therefore moves to judge. He also moves to save. I am the Lord. And so he tells Moses, you go out of Egypt. By, by my own mighty acts, everyone, Exodus says, will know that I am the Lord. The covenant God over my covenant people. So when he moves to vindicate his name, he moves to vindicate his people's names. This is what allows us as Christians, in the face of false accusations, to actually be silent. I was recently at a meeting where one guy was um, telling lies about the other. And you could tell that the guy spitting the lies was just doing it to get underneath the skin of, of the one that he was accusing. And this guy was really getting kind of riled up and he, he began to respond to the false accusations. Because here's a guy who seems to be slandering this other brother. So the guy is just standing up for himself, for righteousness even. And so in the middle of the meeting, I just walked over to the guy and I said, Look, brother, you know that this man's character everyone is seeing right now. You don't need to say a single thing because it is just so plainly obvious that everyone will know what this guy is made of. The stuff of himself. His very own character. So just let him go. And it's so funny, about a minute after that, after you know he sat down and the guy continues to go on and he was spitting more stuff. You know, I raised my hand and was about to say something. And then another guy came up to me and he said, look, just let him go, Jeremy. Just let him go. So I was struggling with the same things. But it's so true, isn't it? In the face of lies, what gets the Christian to just be silent? It's knowing, in fact, that God will indeed vindicate His own name. And wrapped up in that is vindicating His own people's names. I wonder if the truth that God will vindicate His name drives you to entrust yourself to God, even in the face of slander, I'm sure you guys know what that feels like, that gut reaction to respond. It certainly did for Jesus. Listen to what Isaiah says. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And then turn over to 1 Peter. You know, Peter writing to Christians, turn over to 1 Peter. You flip towards the end, and uh, eventually you'll get there. Peter, he actually uses this verse in Isaiah and and wants to apply it to uh, those who are suffering unjustly. Okay, so this is unjust suffering. Peter says, well, where can I go in all of Scripture to help my brothers and sisters who, in fact, are suffering unjustly? And he goes to Isaiah 53. You look there in chapter 2 of 1 Peter, verse 22. Actually, no, look there at, at uh, the verse before, 21. For to this, that is unjust suffering, you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Now, what are his steps? Who? What is it? What exactly is this example that we can follow as we experience Let's say something like slander. It says there, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth, even in the face of unjust suffering. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. I wonder if you doubt the justice of God and you expect maybe God to act immediately right now to settle all of the problems and all the foul, false accusations that are being launched against you. Because Jesus, he has no problem saying, I know the day will come. It might take thousands of years, but God judges justly. And so I can entrust myself to him. I wonder if the truth that God vindicates his name is. Encourages you to entrust yourself even in the face of unjust accusations. Chapters 40 and 41, you know, Joseph's life is like a roller coaster. We're just moving through the text here, looking at his humiliation. Uh, Joseph had been abandoned, sold, falsely accused, he had been slandered. But in chapter 40, there is a glimmer of hope. So it rises to the top. Something good is about to happen. As chapter 40, verse 1 says, after some time, you know, we're not sure how long, two of Pharaoh's officials, the cupbearer and the baker, commit some offense against the Pharaoh. And these, these, uh, these officials were of significant status, so the kings knew that, uh, you know, their enemies could poison uh, them through the cup and through food. And so what you would do, the Pharaoh, you would appoint your trusted people around you to be your cupbearer, and then also to be your baker. Uh, and usually these people were, were the good friends of the Pharaoh. They were trusted people, usually wealthy people. You know, we're not told what, what exactly the offense is, and that's not important. What is important is that they eventually meet Joseph. But again, remember, we know that the Lord was with Joseph. And so we expect something to come of it. You know, once again, if you look at this difficult situation with Potiphar, you got there in the beginning, the Lord, five times in five verses, the Lord is with Joseph. And then at the end of the pot of verse story, you have there in verse 21 of chapter 39, and then uh, you have there in verse 23 of chapter 39. Again it says, "The Lord was with him. Even in prison, whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So something good is going to happen. And it does. Previously Joseph's dreams and interpretations are the things that get him in trouble. But here in verse, from verses five to 19, they become his greatest asset. One night the officials dream their own dreams, and then in the morning they are disturbed. Joseph is the one taking care of them. So Joseph approaches them and says, you know, what's going on here? Uh, What's wrong? And they say, look there in verse 8, we have had dreams and no one to interpret them. And Joseph responds very interestingly. We really see his character here. He says, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell me them. Tell me them, and as a man of God, I'm going to go ahead and tell you the meaning of the dreams. And so we see his character. Joseph is not running from God. He's not uh, dodging God. There's no evidence that he's ignoring God or that he's angry at God, despite all the sufferings that he goes through. We're meant to think that Joseph knows that God is with him. And so there he stands in the middle of the prison saying, tell me your dreams. They belong to God. I'll tell you the answer. In verses 9 to 13, the cupbearer tells Joseph his dream. To summarize, the dream is a good one with a good interpretation. Just go ahead and scan those verses. He dreams that he will be serving Pharaoh again. The cupbearer puts the cup back into Pharaoh's hand full of juice. The interpretation, the gist of it, is that Pharaoh will restore him to the position of cupbearer. Joseph says there in verse 14, But remember me, please, when it is well with you. And please do me this kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house, this place, this pit. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. All right, so this is his way out of jail. And So you have like this little glimmer of hope here. The dreamer, once despised for his dreams, now all of a sudden the cupbearer sees his value. And then the baker, you got the baker. You know, seeing, wow, you know, the is given a favorable interpretation. I'm going to tell him my dream. And verse 16, he says, I had a dream too. But unfortunately, though, G- Joseph says that this interpretation is very unfavorable. He has all these baked goods. He's carrying them towards Pharaoh, but the birds are stealing them away. You know, I don't have to be a genius to understand the basic gist of this. This is not good. He says there, in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree and the birds will eat the flesh from you. Verses 20 to 23 give us the resolution. Pharaoh, he has this birthday party, a royal celebration, and it comes to pass just as Joseph had said. The cupbearer is restored and then the baker is executed just as Joseph foretold. But then get this in verse 23. Here we go. You know, again, this is a roller coaster. We can see the dip. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. It stinks to be Joseph. It stinks to be Joseph. I wonder if you've ever felt forgotten by God. Not only by the world, but by God. There's a lot of reasons why Christians today may feel forgotten or feel a certain sense of hopelessness. Perhaps the thing that you want, you don't quite have yet. Whether it be a marriage, or children, or career, or just a family that's reunited and not so dysfunctional. And so therefore we feel, because we don't get these things, that God has abandoned us and forgotten us. I personally know what this is like to feel hopelessness and a disconnectedness. But I pray that in the midst of feeling forgotten, remember, feeling forgotten, we're able to base our lives and that struggle on God's truth. And even driven back to the example of Jesus Christ, I mean, you realize that Jesus was abandoned by his disciples? Some of them his very own family. He too was sold as a commodity for 30 pieces of silver by Judas. And indeed he was falsely accused of pitting himself against the Roman Emperor and establishing some sort of rival earthly kingdom. And even after his death. The Pharisees tried to make up stories so that he would forever be forgotten. But friends, God never forgets his Son. Nor does the Father forget the objects of his Son's love. The Father never forgets the Son, and the Father never forgets the objects of his Son's love. And so even though Jesus dies on the cross bearing the wrath that we deserved and then is laid in the grave as God the Father moves towards God uh, Jesus and raises him from the dead. He never forgets his son, nor forgets the objects of his love. And we know what this is like. Imagine if we have a child, or you can imagine having a child, and you desire to have the child back with you, and the child loves this teddy bear. And finally, you know, I mean, let's say your child gets lost, you go and move to find your child, And yet you know that this little teddy bear that they love so much that the child would feel more secure if they had that special thing. Well, friends, that special thing is you, if you are a Christian. So even though we might feel forgotten and in the depths of the grave, covered in the darkness, we can remember, in fact, that God never forgets His Son and never forgets the objects of His love that is you. And so, as God raises Christ from the dead and seats him in the heavenly places at his right hand, surely, surely he will, because he loves his son, raise with him the church. Sinners, where they could be with their Savior. And also because of his own very love for the church. The church is the object of his own affection. And so God the Father, Christ the Son, will never forget them. Just as Christ is coming, so the church is too. And He never forgets. But, that, but it is true that what He remembers may not be the things that you want Him to remember. Does that make sense? What He remembers may not be the things that you want Christ to remember. So those who expect perfect health on earth, you know, maybe you want Jesus to remember, hey, didn't you promise me these things? Well, Jesus is not going to remember that because he never promised that. God has not promised that we would be free from earthly death. But he did promise us a resurrection to new life. Certainly God will remember that. Christ will remember that. Those who expect a trial-free and sin-free life on earth, God has not promised that. He hasn't promised an earthly life free from sin and hurt, but he has promised us an eternal life that will be free from sin. Where every tear will be wiped away and there will be no fears. And one day he has promised to usher us into that life. Those who expect a prosperous life here on earth, whether you define a prosperous life with uh, lots of cash or maybe a dream job, a spouse and children, God hasn't promised us these earthly things. He hasn't promised us to prosper us in this way, but he has promised us a spiritual family, a mansion in heaven where he is the father and with all joy we will live to his glory with his other children. Those are the things that God remembers. It makes us wonder and question, well, are we wanting certain things that God has not promised us? So friends, if you are indeed feeling forgotten by God because you are holding God to promises he has never made... This is an encouragement to you to hold on to things He has promised Himself and His steadfast love. Did you notice there in verse thirty-nine, what it is that God is showing and promising to Joseph. Look there in twenty-one, verse thirty-nine, or sorry, verse twenty-one of chapter thirty-nine. It says, "But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison." This is the very nature of God here. His steadfast love. Don't just think that he is faithful to love. But here's steadfast love. What it means is that everything that God promises, he fulfills. And so God is moving with all authority, all sovereign power and love and presence to fulfill all of his presence. Or sorry, fulfill all of his promises, including his divine presence. Well, that is Joseph's humiliation. Now we come to Joseph's exaltation. Point number two. Joseph's exaltation, point number two. Two whole years pass in the dungeon here. As verse 41 one says, and at the chapter as the chapter begins, Pharaoh here dreams his own dreams. I'll just give you a dream summary there. You can go ahead and scan it there from verse two on. Uh, there are two different dreams. Dream one, he dreams that seven healthy fat cows come up out of the river. And then seven unhealthy skinny cows come up after them and then gobble them up. Dream two, he goes on and dreams the second dream. And there in verses five to eight, he dreams about seven healthy ears of grain are replaced by seven unhealthy ears of grain. Verses seven, uh, sorry, eight and nine. Look there. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled and he sent and called for the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them this, his dream. But there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Now we want to stop right there for one moment and see what God is doing. One moment. The ruler of the greatest superpower of the world at the time stands lost. After he has already consulted all the wisdom of the supernatural authorities of his kingdom... He calls for the greatest of his wise men, the most powerful magicians, which we know from the book of Exodus, that they can do some crazy stuff. And what they lack is the wisdom he needs to deliver him. They can't provide him anything, his very own people, but there is a Hebrew who can. A man of God. And the Cupbearer, verses 9 to 13, he remembers there. And then in verse 14, He remembers what happened uh, uh, in the prison there. Then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph. They drew him out of the pit. They shaved him. They changed him. And he came before Pharaoh. So the ruler of the mightiest superpower in the world must, after exhausting all knowledge and wisdom and all the supernatural in his own kingdom, finally stands there before a Hebrew man saying, help me. Verse 15, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream. And there's no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Now imagine if Joseph were maybe like us. So moved through the sufferings of life and the trials when we're not standing on the truth. You know, in those moments we might want to give up. Disinterested. Not ready to stand where God wants us to stand in terms of the ministries that he calls us. You guys know what this is like, right? When we're so discouraged, we just kind of want to check out of everything. Imagine if Joseph were like that, standing before Pharaoh, and he says, no, I think you really should just go ahead and continue looking for wisdom in in Cush, maybe. Maybe you turn to Syria, because this God, no, 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 he's not going to answer. Do you think you would have been able to stand in the gap after years of suffering and all of this humiliation, you know I think in bitterness and in an anger and hopelessness, I might be speechless, but thank God that Joseph is not. He doesn't give up. But the story gives us every reason to believe that Joseph is resilient in his faith and also in his service, despite being abandoned, sold, falsely accused, slandered, imprisoned, Joseph is there, grounded in his faith that I am a representative of the covenant God, Yahweh, the king of the land. Verse 16, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Discouraged? Yeah, let's assume so. Suffering? We assume so too, no doubt. But yet he is confident in God. And so he gives Pharaoh this interpretation here. Joseph, in in, uh, 25 to 32, Joseph interprets for Pharaoh in verse 25, both dreams are exactly the same. To summarize, the seven healthy cows and and the seven healthy ears of grain stand for seven years of prosperity. So prosperity is going to come. But then the seven unhealthy cows that eat up the healthy ones and the seven unhealthy ears of grain that replace the healthy stand for the seven years of famine. So the seven years of plenty will be replaced by the seven years of great famine. And what Joseph affirms is that everything that was going on in Egypt, from the dreams of Pharaoh to the coming years of plenty, to the ravishing years of famine, will be brought about by the hand of God. Look at what Joseph says there about Pharaoh's dreams in 41.25. 41.25. And here again, you see his character. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed it to Pharaoh, what he is about to do. The same thing is repeated there in thirty-two in different ways. Slightly look there, in verse thirty-two, and the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God. So he is he has determined it, and God will shortly bring it about. He has the power to do it; it is fixed, and he will do it. These are incredible confessions or truths that Joseph seems to be holding on to, and here he gets the opportunity to hold them out to Pharaoh. Joseph's conclusion. Look there, it's in 33 and 36. Look how Joseph is there to serve and to take advantage. Uh, Just go ahead and skim that there. He calls that Pharaoh would set a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. So that he would save in the plentiful years and then eventually distribute in the years of famine. So here's Joseph being ready not only to give an interpretation of Pharaoh, but also to serve at his right hand if Pharaoh would have him. Pharaoh's response there in verse 37. Pharaoh thinks it's a great idea. Listen to what Pharaoh says there in 38. Can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? There is none so discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Now we shouldn't make too much of this. The Egyptian culture then was a polytheistic culture. So they could just be adding the God of the the Hebrews to their pantheon. But like yet here you have Egypt, the most powerful man in Egypt, saying, there is something to this Hebrew's words, and there is something to this Hebrew's God. And so you have the seed of the woman being a blessing to the world. And then there, Pharaoh gives them his signet ring, the authority to formalize documents. He gives them new clothes. If you're looking there, just scan there and 41 down. Pharaoh gives him new clothes designating his favor. There's his new clothes that he wears. Verse 33, Pharaoh has him ride in his second chariot. And then Pharaoh calls all the Egyptians to honor him and endows him with all this authority, this new name, this new wife. And here we see Joseph going from a teen shepherd boy to second in command over all of Egypt. So while the larger purpose will not be made clear until later, as we're going to see in the upcoming weeks, we see that there is great deliverance already. We see that there's deliverance for Joseph. Remember the authority that he once dreamed of as he, uh, when he dreamed as a shepherd boy that he would possess authority? Well, all of a sudden, now he has it. But yet, it came through trials and tribulations. There's also deliverance for Egypt. Because of Joseph's involvement in Egypt, he was actually able to secure the safety of the people. Verses 46 to 49 tell the story about how Joseph stored up food And then verses 53 to 57 tell the story about how Joseph was able to distribute all that food to the people in their time of need. But it wasn't just Egyptian deliverance that Joseph helped bring about. It was deliverance for the world. Look there verse verse uh, 56. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. That's vindication, isn't it? At the beginning of this Egypt episode, Potiphar's wife slanders Joseph, saying this Hebrew was brought up in to laugh at us Egyptians. But then by the end of this Egyptian passage, 4155, the king of all Egypt is saying, Go to the Hebrew. Through him we are saved. And all of this by the sovereign providence of God. This is vindication, isn't it? And once again it points us to Jesus Christ. Through the seed of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, deliverance would be one for the world. And through the obscure back country, Hebrew man, Jesus of Nazareth. Course the salvation that Scripture promises, that God Himself promises, is not one of food. It's not necessarily one of earthly prosperity, but it is in fact one of uh, spiritual prosperity, forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, adoption into his very own family, and a relationship with God the Father, where he promises that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And as Hebrew thirteen says, because of those things we can look in the faces of our fears and say, God has promised me these things, therefore, what can man do to me? Because I trust myself to God. Friends, this salvation can be yours, this spiritual prosperity can be yours, this new family can be yours, if you would turn from your sins and repent and believe and place your faith in Jesus Christ, the true seed, who brings the blessings of salvation to the entire world. This is how God keeps his people in his grace, by his grace. For Joseph, as God is building up His people, establishing uh, the people of Abraham as a nation, even as He's moving to bring out one of His seed to be a blessing to the world, He is keeping His people in His grace by His grace. We saw how He does this to those who abandoned Him last week. Praise God, as we are all sinners who deserve nothing but His wrath, but in God's kindness, He gives us His grace. This week here is very clear that we see Joseph. He's our example of what it means for God to keep his people in his grace, by his grace, to those who are abandoned. And we saw this most clearly in Jesus Christ, as God never forgets his son. So God never forgets his people. This is who God is, the Lord, Yahweh, steadfast in love to those who love him and keep his commandments. To those in his covenant, friends, he will never abandon you. Let's pray together. Our Father in Heaven, Lord, we thank You for Your promises, and we thank You that they are rock-solid. We pray that we truly would build our lives upon them, knowing that You are our great shepherd, that You are our fortress. And in You, we cannot be moved. And so we proclaim with the psalmist that our soul finds rest in You. And we know this to be true as Jesus Christ called all who were weary and burdened by their sin to come to me. For I am the Savior and you will find rest for your souls. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you too for the promises of the fact that you say that you will never leave us nor forsake us. And so with confidence we can face the trials and the temptations that come our way. Knowing that you will never leave us. Knowing that you are present with us. Knowing that in your Son you have walked amongst us, and even giving us your Son, you desire to identify with us. And also knowing that even in our trials you promise to sanctify us, using those trials and temptations to sharpen our faith, to refine our faith. Oh Lord, we pray that Joseph would be our example. That just as you insist to readers here in Genesis, Lord, we pray that we would know that you are with us and when tempted to think that you have abandoned us somehow, Father, we pray that you, by the power of your Spirit, will be ministering these truths to our lives as we turn again to Christ, our hope, and our example. In your name we pray.